Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is guitarist, composer, and musical director Hayden Maringer. First of all, TikTok is a brand new music distributor. Yeah, they have a new feature called Sound On, and now you can take all of your music, put it up on TikTok, and then have it distributed to places like Apple Music and Deezer, Pandora, Spotify. And instead of going through CD Baby or TuneCore Disco Kid, you can just do it here. So why would you want to do that? Well, first of all, there are no fees. Second of all, you get 100% royalty from TikTok for at least the first year and then 90% after that. But for all the music that goes directly on TikTok and Rezo, you get for lifetime, 100% full royalty rate. So again, full royalty or 90% royalty, worst case, and no distribution fees. And what they're looking for, just like most of the other distributors, is a CD file, 44116. They will create a UPC and ISRC code for you, so that's a plus. You don't have to pay for that. And if you want, they have a free transfer from other platforms. So if you go, wait a second, I'm paying a lot of money with this other distributor over here. Oh, guess what? You can transfer over to TikTok SoundOn. So that's very interesting. TikTok is trying to take over the world, and this is just the next step. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, Learn about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com, as well as all the openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Here's something kind of scary if you're a guitar player with a tube amplifier. Vacuum tubes are about to get scarce, and the ones that will be around, the price is going to skyrocket. Pretty good thing because now amplifier simulators are just so good and it looks like this is going to force a lot of people to go that direction. Now, if you're not really clear on this, vacuum tubes or valves as they're called in the UK have been using guitar amps for a long, long time, way, way back to the 50s, actually before that, even in the 40s. And guitarists really like the sound. Problem is when you use vacuum tubes, they're hot and they're heavy and amplifier simulators do a pretty good job, especially for live. Not only are they used in guitar amps, vacuum tubes are also used in power amplifiers and a lot of audiophile gear. Well, in response to the sanctions that have been leveled against Russia, the country has decided to impose a ban on 200 export items, and guess what? Vacuum tubes are one of them. Most of the vacuum tubes that we use today come from Russia. They haven't been made in the United States for a long time, although the U.S. used to be a leader with General Electric and Sylvania and RCA, just some of the big brands that they used to have. But with solid-state electronics coming in, there was less demand, and also OSHA standards made it pretty expensive to make vacuum tubes in the United States. There's actually only one company, it's Western Electric, that makes at least one style, a 300B, which is only used in audiophile gear. They make it in the United States. So the brands that are affected are Tongue Soul, Electro Harmonics, EH Gold, Genelax Gold Lion, Mullard, Svetlana, and Savtech, which again, I bet if you go into a music store 
you're going to get one of these. Well, you used to get one of them. There are still some vacuum tunes being made in China, but again, they have supply chain issues, and there's also a brand new COVID breakout out there, which basically means that that's going to dry up as well. So it looks like at least until the end of 2022, prices for vacuum tubes are going to skyrocket. So get ready. Go out and get them now while you can. Go out and get them now if you think you're going to need replacements. My guest this week is Hayden Marringer, who's performed countless shows and tours all over the world, working with artists such as Jennifer Lopez, Demi Lovato, the band Perry, Carrie Underwood, and many more. Hayden established himself as a musical director and guitarist, but also as an actor working as lead guitar player on the Fox hit TV show, Glee. He's also worked as a composer with credits such as The Scorpion King, Quest for Power, commercials for Ford, and shows on NBC and the BBC. During the interview, we spoke about his audition with Lady Gaga, the importance of reading music, a pressure-packed session with Jennifer Lopez, learning how to become a tour music director, and much more. I spoke with Hayden from a studio in Hollywood. Let's start with your background, because I know you get into the music business on a high level very young. I did, yeah. I've been working in the industry for a long time. Um, I've been playing guitar since I was three years old. My family, I'm the only person in my family that like does music at all. But um, I'm the oldest of six kids, and they got us all instruments when I was growing up. And I just so happened to get the guitar and just loved it. It was one of those things that they just were like, oh, Christmas, we're going to get everyone instruments this year. So everyone else kind of was like, yeah, this is cool. And then didn't do anything with it. You know, my brother got drums. My sister got piano. And I just loved it and spent literally my entire childhood just staying in my bedroom and playing guitar all day listening to records and, and learning them, I was, you know, just enjoying music. And I just always loved it. And my parents saw that. And so they, you know, my dad would take me to a bunch of shows and he would also, it was one of the situations where I started getting uh, like, I started doing like guitar, I guess if there is such a thing, it's kind of hilarious to think of it now, but like guitar competitions, like young for like child prodigy type things which is weird to me because now it's like music's so subjective. Like, how do you judge something like that? It seems ridiculous to me, but uh, they always like nurtured that in me to like, just pursue music. And even to the extent where I would just be like, Hey dad, I'm skipping school for the next couple of days to practice for, you know, and he'd be he would be like, yeah, no problem. Cool. Wow. So I, I barely went to school, uh, barely went to high school and just always did that. But I guess the biggest start, uh, when I started working professionally was I went to Berkeley College of Music. I got a scholarship to go there. Uh, it was the only school I applied to and thought, hey, I mean, I might as well, you know, go and see what happens. So I went and in the first semester, there was this big audition for uh, Lady Gaga's World Tour. This was in 2009. So I was I had just I was either 17. Yeah, I think I was 17 at the time. And uh, my dad hit me up and was like, hey, we heard about this audition. Uh, is this something you'd be interested in doing? And before I went to Berkeley, I probably would have said no because I was so, I, not not close-minded, but I, I had a, uh, 
I had a path that I wanted to go down to, you know, and so I probably would have said no, but Berkeley kind of opened my mind to different styles and different players. And like, I just took everything in that I could. Right. And so I said, yes. And we, we went to New York. It was right during school. And I ended up, you know, it was an open cattle call with thousands of people, you know, from all around the world, you know, all these like much people, much older than me that have been touring forever. And I met the music director um, and got all the way to the very end. It was me and like one other person and who I'm still known and friends, uh, friends with great guy, talented guitar player, but she thought I was too young, which looking back. Yeah, I was too young. I, like who would hire a 17 year old kid for a world arena tour? You know, it's kind of ridiculous, but, um, I met the music director and like literally within the first two months of that, he started just putting me on gigs and I had to make the choice to either stay in school and try to do both or leave. So I ended up leaving because it just wouldn't have worked out that way. So I left school and that avalanched into literally like a million different things, you know, from there. So it's kind of when people ask me, they're like, how do you get started? How do you get all these crazy gigs? I always tell them just play anywhere and everywhere, you know? You yeah. got to just play because people got to see you play. And then they think, oh, we need this. And they go, oh, we should call him. We've seen him like we, you know, he's he's plays everywhere. So I would literally just go to these random open auditions, you know, even when I was doing big gigs. So after I kept music directing and that that music director, Joe Wilson, who I'm actually going to see tomorrow, which is awesome. But he he kind of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes of music directing and putting together shows for artists and, and doing that whole thing. And it, I just avalanched into working with a bunch of different people, Jennifer Lopez, Demi Lovato, a bunch of different pop artists, mostly, and uh, some country artists like that, uh, like Carrie Underwood and stuff like that. But it just kind of avalanched by, I don't know if it's luck, fate, whatever it is or a combination of whatever it is. But I always tell anyone you're never too big to go and play. So just go audition, you know? And even yeah. my friends, when I had already done these gigs, they were like, this guy's like, why would you go to an audition, like cattle call audition at wherever. Right. And I, I would just go to any of them because you never know who you're going to meet. And even if you don't get that gig, I always say like, you never know what will turn up it. And at the amount of times I've gotten a gig from not getting a gig, are more than the times I've gotten a gig just from an audition, you know? Yeah. So it's mostly about, you know, just playing, getting out there and playing anywhere you can, you know? Yeah. And and just showing your talents. The Berkeley thing is interesting because I went there and I taught there for a couple of years. And there's one thing in common. Anybody that's good doesn't stay there. That is stigma, isn't it? I found that three or four semesters is probably the max if you're any good, you're out of there and you're, and you're working. Yeah. So it it's, doesn't I mean, surprise me. It's true, but there are definitely exceptions. I know some amazing players who were in my same, uh, or that I met during my time there that graduated and are killing it. So I agree. There is that stigma of like, hey, if you graduated, it's kind of like the you graduated, you failed type thing. But I do know amazing players like Matt Garska, who's an amazing drummer, and he graduated. He's one of my best friends and he graduated and he's a monster player on the cover of Modern Drummer and stuff. So he he's the he's the other side of the coin. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah, it does happen. But I agree. Most of the time it's like 
you kind of go there knowing what you want to do and pursue. And for me, that was one of the biggest things when I went there, my biggest goal was getting out as fast as I could with a degree. So when I went, I spent my whole summer before studying everything and I had done some big band arranging and things like that. And so I really just put in the work and time. And when I came in, they had like a placement test and most people like you just fill out the best you can, right? People go there for a few hours or some just say, no, I'm not even going to take it. And I just want to start at the beginning. So I did the test and it took me two days. I had to come back the next day and do it, which, cause one of them was like scoring a full big band chart to uh, uh, some standards. Right. And obviously that's not going to take the four hours they give you in the time. So I came back, I finished the whole test and I ended up testing out of the entire two year uh, curriculum for Berkeley. So I was like on this path and I was so stoked to do that. And then, yeah, I just, it got totally derailed as soon as I think if I go back, I have one semester left after I did that one and I can get a degree and two, it would have been a year, but the Dean was literally like, I declared my, uh, my major in the first two or like two months. And he literally was like, if you test out of any more, like there's no point in you even staying here. So I don't know, maybe one day I'll do it. I don't know. You know, what I've always found is that actually the first two semesters, maybe three, yeah, are maybe the best. And you begin to specialize after that, but it's all the harmony classes. And you, you were obviously familiar with that anyway, but if you're not, that's information you don't get anywhere else. Or you don't. Few or it's hard to find. It's yeah. hard to find the correct information. There's a lot of like incorrect information, you know, on theory and things like that. But I guess it's not incorrect because it's called theory, I guess, for a reason. Yeah, theory, yeah. not not facts, you know, like I always remember them telling me like, oh, you can't have a, a natural 11 like on a on a major seven chord. And I was like, why not? You know, like some of these tunes that I would write, I was like, I would have that tension in the voicing that I use. I love it, you know, but I guess there's exceptions. Like I said, it's theory, but there's always exceptions to the rule, you know, I think depending on what you're trying to go for. See, when I was there, it really was a jazz school. Yeah. And it was just beginning to open up to other genres of music. Mm -hmm. And now I'm pretty sure that it's fairly open and, you know, it's, yeah. it doesn't necessarily specialize, but it really was a jazz school. And I had no background in jazz. So it, it was like throwing me really into the deep. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, for anybody who who doesn't like have a background in jazz, I, I didn't have a background in jazz. Jazz wasn't my main thing. I mean, I guess fusion kind of stuff is what I was my main thing. But still, even that, I wasn't a jazz cat, nor am I now. But I think with theory, jazz is such a, a vast style that it can literally be applied to anything. And it actually makes everything else seem way easier, you know, yeah. with harmony or anything like that. It's like once you learn the theory of jazz it's like you can play pretty much anything you know or know how how to yeah. you know the the you know the roadmap to get there right and then yeah. it's just technique at that point to execute it you know what was your first big touring gig my first big touring gig was that first one shortly after the gaga audition i went on a tour with an artist named grayson chance and uh cody simpson and grayson was uh he was Ellen's like prodigy kid. He, he had a viral video back in the day on YouTube, like when YouTube was relatively new, I guess not like 2009, but he, he did a cover performance and Ellen like took him under her wing and like 
we played the Ellen show like six times or something with that, with that artist. But that was probably the first one. And that was, a it was a smaller tour. That was like house of blues size menus, you know, and then it kind of evolved as he, he got, we kind of grew with him. He was a young kid at the time. He was probably 13. So super young kid. And we kind of went from that to when he was probably 16, I had still, you know, we still would tour with him whenever he would tour. And at that time, um, I was just the guitar player for that first tour. But then flash forward a couple of years later, I was music directing it and we were playing arenas in like all over Malaysia and all like everywhere. So it was kind of a cool experience to like grow with the artist. And I, I feel like I'm in that situation a lot where I'll, I'll get with an artist and they're just about to pop off and then I'll get to experience that whole journey from them playing at like a small venue to playing like a huge venue with, you know, huge tour, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of a cool experience to, to see that. Cause I feel like most people don't get to experience that, you know? And, and now I don't, it's very rare, you know, most of the time I'll just get a call for an artist that's already established, you know? So it was kind of cool just getting that experience. Cause he was learning new things as I was too, because one thing they don't teach you in music school, which is a fundamental flaw, is how to actually work in the music industry. Like there's no, like the music business classes and things like that, that teaches you the business side for like writers, publishers and things like that. But it doesn't teach you anything about touring and dealing with per diems and negotiating with management on rates and what a fair rate should be per week. And like all these, they don't tell you any of that. You know, so I think that's something that definitely like there needs to be a classes on that, like because I didn't know. And that's when people ask, like, how did you get your start? Like, how do you know? It's like, well, I learned just like everyone else. You just kind of get thrown into it. And then you realize, hey, whoa, I guess I was like severely underpaid for those first tours that I did. And I didn't know how to negotiate. And I, you know, you just don't know. But, you know, a lot of this has to do with the fact that. All musicians, no matter what level you're at, for the most part, you're an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you have to learn how to think like an entrepreneur with all those things Absolutely. that you, you just described. Yes. So there's only a few schools that I know of that really have something like that. Most it, of them assume that you're going to get a job. Job, right. And you really never have a job. Or teach, I guess. Yes. I, I, I guess. Yeah, one or the other, but you're right. And I think that's kind of, that's one thing that Berkeley did do right is they had even no matter what you do, no matter what your major, no matter what it is, you had your core classes and they all had to deal with things I think that are really important, you know, like knowing to how to read music, even though it's kind of like a dying art, it's super important. For instance, uh, I got called to do a tour for the Princess State in two, like a couple of years ago in 2019, right before the pandemic hit, that was like the last big tour that I did. And it was me playing guitar and an entire symphony orchestra and uh, Questlove did all the music and he played drums as well for one of the shows. And it was an entire reading gig, the whole thing. So it's like a lot of cats probably couldn't have done that, you know, and a lot of cats on the gig did struggle and were at like risk of getting replaced. So, there's things like that or, or learning, you know, I've done some film scoring and things like that. And I would have never known how to, how to com- arrange anything or compose anything like that without at least being open to like, 
hey, you should know this, you know? And that's what Berkeley kind of does. It's like, these are all the things you should know. And I found, you know, being a professional musician for as long as I have that you do need to learn all of that because you'll, you'll never know when you need that skill. And you're like, dang, I never in a million years thought I would have needed to know this, you know? Yeah, it seems like the most successful session people, especially, they know how to read music, at least to yeah. some degree, because they're really exposed to it all the time. They have to. You have to, yeah. And especially for session, things like that. But surprisingly, a lot of touring stuff, there is no reading. It's a completely different thing. Most of the time in a tour, you'll have rehearsals, right? And there'll be a music director who will program all the music. And nowadays, most music, unfortunately, has like backing tracks or stems, right? If it's not a full band. And it's entirely, you're learning the entire thing by ear. So for instance, like when I worked with Jennifer Lopez, that gig was insane. I had to learn 21 songs in rehearsal and we were recording them for playback because she was going to do a tour and she, they weren't going to bring a band. And we were going to record the entire live arrangement. And I was just kind of thrown into it. And it was one of those things where we'd, we'd listen to the track, they'd play it, and then we'd record it. And that was it. <laughs> one time. One time. They wouldn't give me the music. So it was like, here's the song. Learn it. Okay, here we go. Record it. Ready to go. I love it. So, it's just like the old days. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like that too is like a dying art. Like not, that's not the norm nowadays. It's, it's not the standard for things. Like a, you said, a lot of session cats do know how to read, but now it's like this weird dynamic where you don't know some gigs are reading gigs, some gigs aren't. And it's just kind of, you have to have a good ear. And that's why I said, like, you never know, like with those ear training classes pay off and they do because, yeah. you know, we, I grew up transcribing by ear, that was my main thing. You know, I transcribed for uh, different different artists and things like that. And it, I think, is one of the most valuable things you could do as a musician is to just transcribe things by ear as much as you can because it gets to the point where you can listen to something and immediately know how to play it without even touching your instrument, you know? Yeah. And I think that's just like when you speak, you don't, you don't think of the words you're trying to like to say, but you can just speak freely. And I feel like with your instrument, that's how it should feel too. You know? Yeah. yeah. You'd be able to just speak freely. And if somebody speaks to you, you can say the same thing back or you can respond, you know? So, yeah, you obviously have some big chops and I'm just curious about how you rein them in when you're doing some of these tours that require yeah. you play well, very specific parts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mostly get hired for the pop R&B gigs like all the time. So it's obviously vastly different than what I like to play because I like to play like jazz fusion, crazy, odd time things. Like I like just wild technique stuff because I like to push the instrument as far as it can go because the other stuff to me is like, I've been doing that forever. You know, it's not, it's not, I don't even have to think about it. So I like to actually struggle and have to think and be like, oh, I got to practice this and like figure this out. I like the challenge for me, you know, but on gigs, it's yeah, you, you obviously you can't play that stuff on a gig. So, I mean, there were situations that this is probably not a story I should ever tell, but <laughs> when I've been on TV gigs and I remember the first TV gig I did um, when I was 
17. And the MD at the time, who, um, who I'm good friends with still to this day, one of my like older brothers, he was probably 12 years older than me. So he was like 30 and I was like 17. And he told me right before the performance, we had rehearsed for like two weeks, right? For this TV performance. And he had told me, okay, right. But like literally as we're about to go on, he's like, you know, that, that section in the verse in the second verse where there's like a little gap after he sings that line, just take that spot and play something there. And I was like, Oh dang, he's going to let me like play like some sort of like cool lick or something. And I played the most craziest lick ever in that space. That was totally just did not fit the song at all. So just did not fit it at all. But it was just something that I wanted to do. And I did it live on TV. And so we thankfully we got to go back to the mixing room. And uh, we went. Yeah, we were at the mixing room and we were listening to it. And he just looked at me and was like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> and, I, and I was just like, uh, I, I didn't know what to say. I was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I just wanted to play something crazy. I thought it was cool. And he, they muted it out. They took it out, thankfully. And I'm glad they did because it would haunt me to this day if they didn't. <laughs> so it comes with just experience. And like that experience was an eye-opening experience to me in that I learned, I kind of, it helped me understand the main goal in, in music. And that's what I was talking about earlier too, is like a lot of people have egos and they get competitive and, and things like that. When it's like music is so subjective, like it doesn't matter, you know, you can play. It's so it's art. It's like, it's like looking at a piece of art. You don't need to know how advanced the painter was. If you like it, you like it. Right. Yeah. So that experience kind of made me rethink like, what is my goal here? And my goal was to be a diverse session player, to be able to play with all these artists. Right. And then also do my own thing and, and also compose music and do film scoring and do production. Like I just wanted to do everything, you know? And what I realized is in those situations, I was thinking mostly about myself. Right. Which I think a lot of players do because, you know, you're on the gig, you're playing the parts and you're like, there's pressure of like, oh, they hired me and they, you know, so it became a learning experience in that I learned not to pull back, but I learned, hey, what, how do you want to sound on this song to best serve the song to where somebody listens to it and nobody else could play and serve the song better. And that became my main goal from that point on was how do I serve this song to where no one else could serve the song better. And it will set like when somebody listens to it, they don't go, Oh wow. That's such an amazing guitar part, but they go, I like that song. You know, mm -hmm. go, that's a good song. The band sounded great. The band sounded tight and that's a good song, you know? So less is definitely more in those situations in most situations, you know, unless you're doing like crazy technical music, which you know, there's yeah. a place for that too, but there's a reason it's not top 40 in popular music. You know, it's always been that niche thing. You obviously have been playing with bands for a long time and you know the joy of playing with other people, but pop music is not so much like that where you, it's based around a lot of loops and samples and stuff. How, what's your approach there? So like I said, nowadays, even... <laughs> It's crazy because even like big rock bands these days, they all 
use tracks or, or supplemental parts that they can't play live for either they don't, can't afford to have a bigger band or things like that. So when I music direct, my goal is always to make everything as live as possible. So you're not relying on that. So if the tracks went down, which like back in the day, 10 years ago, now that you don't have that problem because technology is so solid with that kind of thing. But 10 years ago, it tracks would go out all the time. Right. And it'd be one of those things where, Oh, the tracks are out and you have to just know like to keep playing. And you'd have, you know, ideally you'd have the band set up and the parts set up to where it sounds like the record and no one could notice, you know, but a lot of people do rely now heavily on a smaller band. You know, they'll go out with just like a keys player and a drummer and they'll, you know, obviously their song has a million other things, but they'll just have that as track. So my approach to music directing and when I do that and put together shows is I listen to the track and first what I try to do is improve the arrangement for live. So I'll add different elements, whether that be like rearranging the song for live or uh, changing, you know, instrumentation or things like that. But I always try to make it so everyone is playing the most they can. So the drummer has SPDS pad and can trigger samples, you know, things like that. Everyone singing backgrounds always helps. Um, but nowadays with technology for samples and things like that, it's so easy to just play this, play the samples on a sampler or on a keyboard, you know, which is what I mostly do is I'll just load up the actual samples from the records onto the keyboard and play them live, mm -hmm. you know? And I feel like, not a lot of people do that now because then it's the same point. It's like, well, you're running tracks anyways. Why do that? Why create all this more work for yourself? But maybe it's a more old school approach, but I think it's important because like I said, if something goes down, it's like you should be able to carry the weight of the entire arrangement uh, without any supplemental parts, you know, no matter if it's just you and that's it, you know? You know, you, you just mentioned that you'll do some changes in, in the arrangement. How does that go down with the artists? Because a lot of a lot of artists are, are so precious with their music that totally. Do you get a pushback oh. at all? Uh no. No, no, no. Not really. I mean, I think it definitely depends on the artist. You know, and in a lot of situations, artists, it's a mix because sometimes you'll meet an artist and they're like, they've been doing music their entire life. You know, they they understand production, they understand all those things. But I'd say majority of the time, it's not that way. And they're just a great writer and a singer and don't know anything about production or about the music. So they might not even notice sometimes, you know, and I'll be like, oh, I just changed the arrangement to this. But they won't really even notice. You know what I mean? So it's it comes back to, again, making an arrangement that best serves the song, but is fresh and exciting and new, you know, for so when somebody goes to the show, my goal is to always have them leave and be like, wow, they're better live than on the record, you know, which is kind of, it, it's kind of easier when somebody's already produced out the sound of in the vibe of something, it's kind of easy to be like, okay, let's just elevate this a little bit because a lot of times records, they aren't overproduced, you know, they're very simple and the mix is always right. Right. So it's always, there's a million things you can't hear. So the foundation is pretty simple. How did you make the transition to musical director? There are a lot of players that don't want that gig. Yeah. Like, I, 
I think it goes back to you need to have a Rolodex of skills, right? For, for anything and be able to mold yourself into any situation. And I always tell people that, and I, I, maybe it's just how my personality is, but if somebody says, Hey, we're looking for this, I'll go, cool. Yeah, I can do it. Even though I don't know how to do it. And I'll, I'll just like learn how to do it. Right. Because now there's no reason now to not learn how to, you know, do something. And when I found out one, I didn't even think there was a touring scene, you know, growing up, I never thought, Oh yeah, I'm going to go and tour with artists. Like I, I thought that would be awesome, but I grew up listening to like Led Zeppelin and Van Halen. And all I wanted to do was be in a rock band. So for me, it was just kind of like, Whoa, this is a whole other Avenue I've never seen, you know? And so when I started seeing how it worked and like, okay, so there's a music director and they are kind of like the band leader and they put together the music and they put together the band and tell them what to play and they do all that. I was like, okay, I, that seems like the next step from musician would be to that. Right. And then the next step, the joke is always the next step from there is fired. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Which is true. Which is true. Yeah, the transition from musician to music director is one that you you have to have the skills. And I think the only way to learn the skills is from doing it so long under people and learning and taking away. Like a lot of the, the guys that I would hire um, for my company and have hired, they're out music directing now. And I always kind of instilled that in them is like, yeah, you're, you're working as a musician right now, but your goal should be hey, what I'm doing. You know, you should, your goal, your next step should be that because if you're just, if you're comfortable just being a musician, you're never going to, you're going to be always stuck in that position and you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities, you know? Yeah. You so, put a ceiling on your earning power too. Yeah. You put a ceiling on your entire career. And yeah. Why would you ever do that? You know, the sky's the limit. So it's yeah. I think that transition is just comes with an experience. The same thing you, you do different scenarios a million times, you know, how, you know, just observing and, and learning from people and then learning the production side of thing is super important. You know, you need to know how to produce and, and what sonically fits and how to mix. You need to like, there's all these skills that you need to learn how to do, you know, it's not just plain. Playing is actually a very, very, very small part of it. You know, yeah. even in general touring, it's like you rehearse a couple months for a tour or a month, but the amount of playing you actually do is like, let's say you have four shows a week, and you're playing for like an hour and a half. It's not that much actual playing, you know, it's mostly just traveling and waiting. You mentioned doing new things, and among the new things that you've done or the let's say expansion of your talents has been composing for film and television. So how, yeah. how did that happen? That I had always kind of done that. Uh, when I went to Berkeley, my major, I declared my major, like I said, in the first couple of months and I was doing contemporary writing and production. So originally I was thinking, Hey, like this would be great to learn these skills just for, you know, producing my own music which I do to this day. So um, it's, yeah, learning, learning those skills for writing and production is something that 
I think every musician should do because at the end of the day, your goal is to play music and make music. And if you don't know how to make music, all you can do is play music. And if you can only play music, then you're limited to just playing gigs and just the pool for that's very small and it's hard thing to get into and to continue doing it because you could be working on a huge tour and then you're not working for a year and you gotta, I know a lot of cats that just wait, you know, but it's like, if you're just waiting and you're limited to just that, it's just, there's all, you know, everyone that taught me, they always said you have to have some side hustle and other things that you do. And I think that's super important being an entrepreneur and in general, you know, you have to have other avenues and things like that. So for writing and scoring for TV and stuff like that, it kind of just came naturally to where I had met somebody in a session and they recommended me because they knew I had done it. And then I worked, uh, they were looking for a guitar player for Hans Zimmer's team. We're scoring the Scorpion King movie. And so they called me to do guitars and I ended up doing a bunch of cues for them with it. And it was an awesome experience. And then from there, it just kind of catapulted into like random one-off composer gigs where I would compose music for different commercial writing and things like that. And then around, I think right before the pandemic, like 2018, 2019, I stopped touring and was thinking not of pursuing film and TV more often, but to start working on my own music because I had never really done that. So I started my own band um, with the drummer from One Direction um, that I met on tour. And then uh, also a singer named Sean, who's an amazing, amazing talent. And it was a three-piece band. Um, We started, yeah, I think fall of 2018. And now it's just the uh, singer and myself. We're a duo, but we were producing all of our own music and we're getting these massive syncs just from doing that. So, you know, our music's been, it was the title music for the Olympics, summer Olympics in uh, Tokyo over the summer and a bunch of different other syncs. So it's like, that's all encompass of film and TV writing, right? Cause yeah. I'm writing and composing music and it's on film and TV as well. So there's, like I said, they all connect. Like you, you need to be able to do everything, you know, not, not, it depends on what you want, but in general, to be a professional music uh, musician, you need to know how to do everything, yeah. you know, yeah. and never know where it will lead. And that's what I always tell people, you know, you never know an audition. If you go there and you're bummed out, like, oh, they, they didn't like me. I didn't get it. You never know who saw you there. You never know. You never know the situation. And the amount of times I've gotten gigs from that, just random gigs, you know, like that's how I got on Glee on I was on leave for two seasons as like an actor, right? So now I'm an actor. I'm not an actor. I never acted in my life, but I've been on like six TV shows as the guitar player guy, which again, it's all encompass of what it is, right? Being a musician, but now I'm a actor in quotation marks, you know, but it's all again, encompass of being a professional musician and knowing how to adapt to whatever the situation calls for. You know, yeah, just yeah. the pandemic. I know a lot of amazing players that it took them out. You know, they had to move out of L.A. They had to leave, move back home or, or figure something else out because they were those players that was like, I just want to play gigs. I don't want to do any of the other stuff. And it's like, well, if when that's gone, what do you have left? Yeah. Right. You know? 
a lot of cats were left with not a, a lot to do. Like, what can you do? The only thing you could do is produce and write music and get syncs and, and pursue those avenues, you know? For sure. Last question, Hayden. What's the best piece of advice? Could be business, it could be music, that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? The best, uh, I actually know the perfect answer. Back in the day, probably over 10 years ago, this uh, amazing drummer named Jamal Moore, he always told me, no matter what, no matter the situation, you know, and he meant in terms of like how you carry yourself in the industry as a professional. He said, no matter what, at the end of the day, trust in your gift. Trust in your gift because you worked your ass off your entire life doing this because you love it. And when things are tough, you just got to trust in that your talents have value, you know? And so when you, when you have that faith and trust in what you do, I feel like there's, there's nothing that can stop you with that mentality, you know, because you'll want to do everything. You'll want to spend all day learning something new in music. You'll want to practice your instrument. You'll want to do all those things. And I've always wanted to practice my instrument. I've always wanted to play music. I've always want, I do it all day. That's all I do. You know, it's like literally that's my entire life. So I think the best piece of advice I would say to somebody coming up is trust in your gift and be inspired and continue to grow. And there's never, it's, it's all about the process and the journey. So if it's rough, know that there's light at the end of the tunnel and you know, you'll climb your way out, but trust in your gift and keep moving forward. Always keep pushing forward. That's it. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. no, it's true. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget when he told me that. And I was just like, dang, I, I never would have thought like that. Yeah. It's easy to, to think the opposite actually. Oh, it's far more easier, you know, to think the complete opposite. And that's, you know, I feel like that's just human to think the opposite, but every time I feel that way, I go trust in your gift. And it makes me comfort in that at the end of the day, no matter what I have music and I love music and I could be totally content just having music. You can find out more about Hayden at HaydenMarringer.com. That's Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, Marringer, M-A-R-I-N-G-E-R.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOsinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time 